your Bibles out because we've been talking about loving our Bibles. Do you love your Bible? I want you to love your Bible. You can love God and love His Word. And uh, we want to love our Bible because our Bible is the can- well, it's called the canon. Now, when I say canon, it's not doesn't mean like it's like a gun canon, although it can be that kind of canon, I suppose, as well. But a canon is the rule. It's the measuring stick. It's how we evaluate everything. And so the Bible is important. It's God's voice. It's his established voice to us. And it is the most important uh, earthly book that you can have in your possession. The Bible is just an amazing book. Um, Voltaire was a French philosopher in the early and mid-1700s. Voltaire was an atheistic philosopher. He was a part of the foundation of the French Revolution. Does everyone know the difference between the French Revolution and the American Revolution? Because they happened right around the same time. The American Revolution, thank you, I will tell you exactly. The American Revolution was based on religious precept. In other words, the pulpits of America were aflame with righteousness and they were declaring liberty in order to serve God. The, the, the mantra of the American Revolution, we have no king but Jesus. That was the American Revolution. The French Revolution, on the other hand, was reacting against religion. They wanted freedom from all restraints, including religious restraint. And Voltaire was a part of that. He was a part of the philosophical foundation of the French Revolution. And he made the statement, he said, that there would come a day in history where the only place you would find a Bible is on a dusty old shelf in a museum. He made that statement in the early, mid-1700s. You know, God has a sense of humor, I think. Because Voltaire passed away, and his home became a printing business for Bibles. How many of you know you don't mock God? And uh, it's just amazing how God sustains his word. He will vindicate his word. And if I were you, I wouldn't say anything against his word. Uh, We don't worship the Bible in the way we worship our God but we do, we do honor the Word of God, and we're learning more about it. And today we're going to talk, and I know I only have just a couple minutes, but we're going to talk about the comprehensive nature of the Scripture. And what that means is this. Does the Bible speak to every area of our life? Yeah, you're, you're, you're shaking your head. You, you know already where this is going. Does the Bible speak to every area of life? Yes. Does it speak to your family? Yes. Your job? how you raise your kids, how you work out your marriage, how you run a country, how you run a business, how you be a good employee, how you be a good employer, how you find happiness, how you break addictions, how you get your joy back, how you elect rulers, how should I vote, how a person in general should live. The Bible, believe it or not, the Bible speaks to all of these areas. And the key is you and I just have to uncover it. And so, uh, this afternoon, I entitled the message, and I'm going to hop around. So, Matt, I think Matt's up in the booth. Matt, God bless you. Keep your fingers nimble, because I may be all over those notes different ways. But, but the message today I entitled, God is not from the ghetto. God is not from the ghetto. 
Now, that may not make any sense this second, but it's going to make perfect sense in just a moment. Colossians 1, I'm going to read verses 9 through 20. Uh, and I think it'd be good just to hear the Word of God. In fact, we've not done this in ages, but in honor of the Word, would you stand with me? Let's just stand. We don't often do this, but let's just do it today. Let's stand in honor of God's Word as we read Colossians 1, 9 through 20. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, for all patience and long suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. The technology went out. You know, that's what, well, you know a part of that is, I'm going to give you a quick lesson here. Part of it is that the enemy is the prince and the power of the air. And he can get into these things. There's no doubt about that. We do our best. I know the tech team always does its best to present an excellent presentation. And I don't know that we've had a glitch one here. But isn't it amazing? The second thing, though, I want to give this to you is this. That when God's presence comes, God's presence will get into technology as well and trip it. I've, I've seen lights go out when the presence of God comes. And so understand that whether it's, it's the enemy who's just messing with us and messing up the, the reading of the word or, or whether the, the presence of God is coming and, and to help us understand it, technology trips. God says, I, I don't need your technology. Now, that may have to be discerned, and I don't have the last word on that, but I'm just here to tell you there is, there is spiritual activity that is taking place in our midst. And I suspect both God is indeed at work and the enemy is squirming. But thank you guys, all the tech folk, thank you because I know you work hard at it. But sometimes as hard as you work, it's just, it's beyond us. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, you notice all, all, all. And in him, all things consist. That's a great, this is one of my favorite passages because what Paul is saying is this. If Jesus, Jesus isn't in it, it ain't never going to work right. That's what he's saying. Jesus isn't in your life, your life isn't going to work right. If Jesus isn't in your marriage, your marriage isn't going to work right. If Jesus isn't in your house with your kids, it isn't going to work right. If Jesus isn't in your business, it isn't going to work right. If Jesus isn't in your nation, your nation isn't going to work right. Doesn't matter. 
And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Jesus is number one in everything. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. In other words, Jesus is out to get everything back. Everything. People, marriages, families, businesses, governments, nations. He's out to get it all. Everything. Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. God is not from the ghetto. You may be seated. God bless you. Now, I'm going to leap and just go right to the thought that's going through all of your minds that you're asking. You're saying, what does a ghetto have to do with the Bible touching every area of life? So let's just start there. What is a ghetto? The word ghetto is oftentimes used pejoratively. It's used most of the time in a racial or an ethnic way. Now, depending on your age, ghettos can solicit images, perhaps of certain ethnicities or races that predominantly live together, usually in a very economically oppressed area. And because of that oppression, the community oftentimes can look run down, look in disrepair, or look shabby. In other words, that's the ghetto. That's ghetto down there. Now, it's no secret that many of our urban areas of America have unfortunately been ghettoized. There are areas... Uh, we know this, that the black community, I think predominantly, has experienced the largest percentage of effect by it. But you can go to other urban areas and you can find ghettos with other ethnicities, which is usually how it works. You can have Italian sections or, or Asian, Chinese or Vietnamese sections, other nationalities that, that, that congregate together that are economically challenged and, and the area becomes a ghettoized Area Now, as I, as I share that, those may be the initial thoughts that go through your mind, but a ghetto is best defined like this. A confinement or restriction to a particular area, activity, or category. So ghetto is more than just an area of town, but ghettoization is when something is restricted to a certain area. Let me give you an example. For years, women, let me just take an example, women were ghettoized into the status of just strictly housewife. Isn't that true? Women for many, many years. They, to have a woman in business was unusual. In fact, it was an anomaly. Most women were relegated to being homemakers. And when you are restricted in your aspirations or when you're restricted in what God's purposes or anything else may be for you and you're restricted by others into that arena, that is called ghettoization. So, for instance, in World War II, when the Nazis gathered up the Jews, they gathered up all the Jews, they pulled them out of their homes, and they put them in one part of town. And they had to do their economics, their businesses in that section of town. They couldn't move from that section of town. They were isolated there. They were ghettos. They were called the Jewish ghettos. And so the point Paul was attempting to make when he wrote Colossians chapter 1 was this. <laughs> he was saying, Jesus ain't from the ghetto. 
You can't restrict Jesus to certain areas or even a area, an area. He's not going to be restricted into anything. No subject, no topic. Redemption and lordship touches every area of life. There is no ghettoization when it comes to Christianity. Now, it has been this very point that's always made those of us who are biblical Christians collide with our world. Because you've heard me taught numerous times that Rome's opposition and their hostility to Christianity was not because the empire was atheistic. Rome had lots of gods and would have gladly accepted Jesus as one of many. But the problem for Rome was that Jesus claimed, as did his followers, that Jesus was not one among many, but he was the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And both the Rome, Romans and the Greeks had all sorts of gods, but all of their gods were ghettoized. Zeus, he was the god of the sea. So... He, he didn't have any effect in any other area except the sea. Uh, Mercury was the god who was uh, oversaw travel and commerce. And so that was his particular area. Uh, uh, excuse me, Zeus was sky, Neptune was sea. So I get my Greek gods right, you know, but I don't study Greek gods much. But here's the point. The point is is that even their gods were ghettoized, that they had certain areas that they were restricted in. But Christianity claimed something different. Christianity said, no, 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 no. Jesus will not stay in your ghetto. Jesus is not going to be restricted in his power, his influence, or his lordship. His lordship has no limits. Jesus is not a figurehead king. He's a ruling king, and it should come as no surprise that the Bible, his authoritative word, is his owner's manual of all of life. So whether it's your personal life, your spiritual life, your business life, uh, it, it, your government life, your nation's life, it doesn't matter. Jesus invades all of it because he ain't living in the ghetto. And the sad part is that in many ways we have allowed the culture to move us into the ghetto. And some of us, I'm afraid, have gotten used to living there. How many times have we heard, well, you know, my faith is, is just a personal and private matter, and I rarely discuss it. You're in a ghetto. Well, you know, I believe in God, but I don't, I don't, I don't buy into all the rules, and, you know, there are certain areas I don't think that have any more, you know, say in our life. You're in a ghetto. You know, well, I know God deals with your spiritual life, but what has that got to do with how I run my business? You're in a ghetto. Well, you know, Jesus isn't remotely involved in politics or public policy. Listen, you're in a ghetto. The Bible has nothing to do with science or physics or even our natural life issues. It's all about spiritual stuff. Listen to me, you are in a ghetto. And from my vantage point, the culture is wanting the ghetto to get smaller and smaller and smaller. But I want you to know that God will not stay in the ghetto. Now, to get out of the ghetto and we'll get there, the question is, how did we get put in the ghetto? Let me give you just a couple quick things here. How did we get put in the ghetto? Number one is this. We've delivered the scripture as inspirational stories rather than authoritative instruction. Now, I love the Bible because it is inspiring. And we all need inspiration, don't we? But inspiration will only get you so far. 
In fact, you can be all jazzed up, you can be encouraged and excited, but if you don't have your marching orders and if you don't know how something is to operate, that encouragement will evaporate quickly. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the scripture is like a flashlight in a dark room. You see, imagine with me, would you, that we're all in a basement. And, and I know we don't have basements here in the south, but I had a basement for a short time up north. And, and your basement is always the catch-all place. You put your boxes, your Christmas decorations. And, and a lot of times basements aren't well organized. They just got boxes everywhere. Well, imagine going in your basement and having to navigate around. Because in my basement there in Indiana, I have the place where you change the filter out. You change the filters downstairs right next to the HVAC unit. And so imagine going into the basement. I'm going down there. The lights are out. It's pitch black. I've got boxes everywhere. And I'm trying to get some work done or some job done by changing out the filter. But I can't see where I'm going because it's pitch black. And I'm stumbling over boxes and I'm tripping over things. And I'm running, I'm running into poles or hitting the, the cement foundation. And it's just dark because there's, there's no light. And, and the minute I put out a flashlight, though, I can begin to navigate my way to the place where I can begin to do the work that I'm being asked to do. That is what the psalmist was saying. He's saying the word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It begins to show you how it is where to walk in this dark world. You see, everybody thinks they can navigate this world on their own. But the reason people stumble and fall is because they don't use the flashlight. And the flashlight is God's word which was given to us. In fact, the Bible says that the righteous may fall six, yea, even seven times, but they shall arise. Now, I look at that verse, and that would be an encouraging verse if you've been stumble-bumbling around. But wouldn't it be a little bit more beneficial if we didn't rely on the verse that says we stumble and fall and arise, but there gets to be a place where we actually begin to navigate life in an effective way. And so, and so hearing God's word, reading God's word, being taught God's word begins to help us navigate a dark world. Now, teaching has fallen on tough times because we live in a feel-good era. In fact, it's hard to get taught. We want, we want something that makes us feel good. Now, nothing wrong with feeling good either. I like to feel good as much as anybody. But the fact of the matter is your feelings don't always translate into appropriate behavior. So you have to be instructed. But people may not like that. In fact, few seem to want to invest the time to be taught that. We want just, you know, a single counseling session, or we want a sermon that may fix it all. We want a prayer that can be prayed over us, and we do the spiritual abracadabra, and it's all over. And we clamor to excitement, we clamor to inspiration. And again, there's nothing wrong with these things at all. But, but it's done to the neglect of being taught. And our nation has a spiritual cancer growing, and our nation just wants to laugh and be entertained. And do the absolute minimum with the absolute most convenience thinking it's going to cure the cancer. But the cancer won't be cured unless, in this case, we're taught out of it. And so we have to realize that, that it's not just inspirational stories, but there has to be instruction. Number two is this. We've disconnected spiritual truth from natural reality. Have you ever heard somebody say something to the effect... 
What does religion or the Bible have to do with that? Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. This is what the psalmist was saying. He was saying there that, that the spiritual side of you will begin to affect and touch all the natural aspects of what you're involved in. From your spirit, the issues of life are dealt with. So if spiritual things are not handled appropriately, it will affect all kinds of natural things. Right now we're in the middle of fasting, praying, giving. All these things are being mixed together. They're all spiritual acts. But all of these spiritual acts are directly related to open heavens, favor over our lives, opportunities, breakthrough, experiencing God's hand. The spiritual realm and the natural realm are directly connected and integrated. And the Bible is what tells us how it works. The Bible says to us that because we are Christians, because we have the Holy Spirit, because we walk according to God's words, we are no longer, and he uses, I know the masculine, but this is for the ladies too. He says, you are no longer mere men. I mean, that's incredible. I am no longer, you are no longer a mere man. Why is that? Because God is in us at work. We have His Word to guide us. That's amazing. Number three is this. We dismiss the relevancy of an ancient book. How did we get here? Because we say to ourselves, what does a book that's a couple thousand years old have to say to me today? What what, what could the Bible possibly have to say to me? I just want to remind you, just because something is old doesn't mean it's wrong, and it doesn't mean it's irrelevant. I have found out that people are the same in every age. If you read the Bible and you read what some of these things that are going on in the Bible, you'll see real quickly that you met that person that you're reading about in the Bible. I've met them. I've met Demas. Yes, I have. I've met Absalom. Yes, I have. I've met some of these characters. People don't change, and God does not change. And the precepts come out of an ancient book in relevant ways. Now, here's the bottom line. We all want to move out of the ghetto, amen? I don't want to live in a ghetto. I want to live, I want to live in a great place. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, of course, this will date me, but I grew up in the era of nighttime sitcoms on television, some of you young people, you know, you've got 500 channels you can watch. And you, you don't understand back in, the, back in the dinosaur era where we only had maybe two, three channels and a UHF channel that was all fuzzy and salty that you tried to, that you tried to tune in on one of those things that you kind of worked it like a radio, you know. And, uh, and, and, and so that's foreign to you. But back in the day, back in the olden times, back when we were all riding horses and horse and carriages and and all these sorts of things. We would watch television, and there would be situation comedies. And, and I started thinking about the ghetto, and I started thinking about how television sort of led us through the experience of black families. For instance, do you remember the original situation comedy? Good Times, exactly. You remember Good Times with J.J.? Was it J.J. Walker? Where you, you remember what this famous word was? Dynamite. See, some of you remember. Dynamite. I remember. Who can forget JJ? And, and, and the show was about this family that always struggled with, with their jobs and, and economics. And they lived in the ghetto. And the, and the stories revolved around their living in a ghetto. 
But then I started thinking about the next sitcom that came along. It was predominantly a black sitcom that sprung off of Archie, you know, Archie Bunker and All in the Family. And that was his neighbor. You remember George Jefferson? You remember George Jefferson? Remember what George did for a living? Dry cleaners. See, everybody's back with me. Now, I'm preaching God's word and everybody's going like this. And as soon as I start talking sitcoms, everybody zeroed in on me. I remember it. George Jefferson. And remember, he lived in, in Archie's neighborhood. And, you know, it was a lower middle class neighborhood, that's for sure. But the whole song that went with the Jeffersons was, Well, I'm moving on up. Now we're not going to sing to the east side. I know, don't sing it. To the deluxe apartment in the sky, that's right. But George, George and his wife moved to this wonderful apartment and they had all the amenities, had a maid as well. And so, and so they were able to move out of the ghetto. And then, and then finally, just, just kind of chronicling sort of the black experience and how really as a nation we started understanding, along came the Cosbys. And yeah, you're there. Now I'm getting back to, now I'm back to mo the modern era. The Huxtables, Cliff and Claire Huxtable. And, and, and the Huxtables, I mean, they, they were not ghettoized. The Huxtables, he was a doctor. He was an OBGYN and she was a lawyer, big time lawyer. And I'm telling you, they, they, they prospered and they were a family that was, that was well off. Now, here's the deal. The church through the application of God's Word, must begin this same process. We have to spring out of the ghetto. We've been ghettoized as the people of God. It, it doesn't mean that we're all living necessarily in the ghetto, but our faith has been ghettoized. Our faith has been pushed or restricted, and it needs to spring out of that. And it can spring out of that, as God's people implement it and invade every arena of life. Now, how does that happen? Let me give you just a couple things and we're done. Number one is this. How do we make the move? It's this. We have to systematically begin to read the book. You notice, this is, this, this is hard for some of us older folk. This isn't hard for you young guys here. I'm glad you guys are here. You're, you're a great illustration for me. We can throw these guys an iPhone... Probably you guys too. And you don't need an instruction book. In fact, I just got the new iPhone 7. Yeah, I'm, I'm, but of course, I probably only know about 10% of what it'll do. You know why? It's because they don't send an instruction manual with it. They don't, do they, anymore? They want you to, I guess they just want you to play with it, right? It's on, oh, you go online. So you just Google and online. They don't print it. Well, it doesn't matter. You see, it's just, I, I, okay. Well, that's still, the point's still made. I don't know probably 80% of what my phone will do because I've never accessed anything that will tell me a little bit about it. As long as I can text message and, you know, get on Facebook and Twitter, I'm pretty much okay. Instagram as well. But you see, you guys just sort of get thrown, and, I, and I've watched, I've watched my kids and the younger adults, and they just, it's intuitive. Because there's, there's, that's just, that's just the generation. But you see, this is the problem when it comes to life. You can't treat life like an iPhone. And that's what we want to do. We want to sort of be intuitive about life. And what happens is, it, we hit it sometimes, but we miss it a lot of times. And the key to it all is, is that this thing is the owner's manual. 
And I realize in this generation, that's an unusual concept to have to look at an owner's manual in order to know how something runs, but that's how God designed it. And one of the tough parts about the Bible, and you know, we can talk to God someday about this, is that I've always wondered why he divided the Bible up like he did in the books that it is divided up in, and why didn't he just create a marriage section? Or why didn't he create, you know, this is the this is how you do marriage, this is how you raise kids. Or, or he could have just said to one of the prophets, he could have said, Obadiah, you got marriage. Zephaniah, you got, you know, you got addictions. Isaiah, you're going to take business. Hosea, you got government. I mean, why didn't he just do that? He could have just divided it up. It would have been so easy. I guess the best we got years ago, of course, we got them thumb tabs. And I guess that's the best we can expect is, is thumb tabs. But the, the, point, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that, is that God didn't put it like that, and it, and it exasperates, I think because of that, it exasperates the myth that the Bible has nothing to do with spiritual things. Because we won't go hunt for it, or go chase after it, we assume it must not be there. But every, all of these precepts are there, and God asks us to, to explore His Word, to know His Word, to be people of the book, to be equipped in the whole counsel of God, in order to have understanding in all of those areas. Number two is this. How do you make the move? Number two is you've got to learn to make the application. That's really challenging. Because you can read the Bible, but the question is, will you apply the Bible? <laughs> will you read something and say to yourself, how does that translate into my life? What principle is there that I can lift out and implement in my walk and journey. Hear me when I say this. It's great that you could read something and say, wow, that's inspirational. That encourages me. That's great. And, and we all need that. Again, I'm not throwing that out. But how often do you say, what, what might I need to learn here? I'll just give you an example. I just, I just thought sometimes people don't know without examples. If the Bible says, for example, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, that we're not to yoke ourselves with an unbeliever. Have you ever thought, what does that mean? Does it mean that we never interact with an unbeliever? Well, of course not. The Bible also says Jesus was a friend of sinners. But being a friend and yoking with someone may look different, right? Friend may not equal yoke. You know, a yoke was what they put between two oxen or two animals that they would be locked together, that when they were doing a work, they could be in step and in sync, and because of that yoking, you know, two is better than one, and there would be more synergy and power and effectiveness that would begin to take place because of the yoking that would take place. And what God was saying was this. He was saying, be sure that you're yoking up with someone who will be walking the same direction as you. Are you following me? Make sure you're yoking up with people who are trying to achieve similar purposes as you. Make sure you're yoking with those who can stay in some form of cadence with you because the worst thing that could happen is for you to yoke up with someone who's going a different direction you're going. And that's why we look at our kids and we say, be careful who you marry because you're yoking with that person. It's why we look at business people and say, be careful who you yoke with because you're going into business with them. Be careful who you make friends with. There's yokings that take place in all different areas. The Bible says, be careful who you yoke with. 
Now you read that, but the question is, will you apply that? That's just one of 10,000 precepts. Teach your children. Let them understand how this works. I'm just using this one as an example. I could have used any one of a number of different areas, but we, you know, we're really concerned that our children dated godly kids. We've intervened. People think we were nuts. I've intervened on every single one of my children and made them break up with people. And I've had other parents look at me like I was crazy. But honestly, I look at them and think, you're crazy. You're crazy if they're in my house that I'm going to let them yoke up with someone that's taking them a direction that we ain't going. It just isn't going to happen. That's the application of God's word. Some of you with small kids, I'm just sowing this into you. Uh, you know, you want your kids to have friends and marry and, you know, have grandkids. And we all want these things. But there comes a moment that you help them. Will you help them right now? When they're small, make great decisions. Okay, so apply the word of God. Ask yourself those questions. How do I apply this? And then three, you resolve to be obedient. Resolve to be obedient. It's what we call follow through. Will you do what you realize is in the owner's manual? Knowing something and doing something are not always the same thing. Demons know everything. But they don't do anything. They say amen, but that doesn't translate into obedience. The Bible speaks of last days being filled with people who are ever learning, but unable to come to a knowledge of the truth. What that means is, is that they can read it, they read it, they read it, but they can't execute what it is they've read. Obedience never happens. The Bible touches every area of life. I want to finish with this and we're going to wind up. Yesterday, <clears throat> Pastor T and I went to see a movie. I'd recommend it actually. It was it was called Hidden Figures. I don't know if any of you have seen that yet. I'd I'd recommend it. It was a it was an inspirational movie. And uh the plot of the movie was it was in the late 1950s early 60s when NASA was first being created the National Aeronautical Space uh, uh, association or whatever NASA's letters stand for. And um, it was in the time of civil rights. It was the time still of great prejudices and bigotry. And it basically followed the story of a group of black women who were working for NASA, one of them being an absolute genius in math. And this whole story uh, followed these ladies uh, showing the, us how talented, how skilled, how smart all of these black women were as they prevailed over all these attempts to ghettoize them. They tried to keep them downstairs. They tried to keep them in certain bathrooms. Uh, they tried to keep them out of certain educational opportunities. They tried to do all of this, but they literally, the story was literally how how they were ingenious, how how there were just some amazing things that happened that they were able to spring out of these ghettos. And we're not talking where they live. We're talking about where, where everyone wanted to restrict them. Part of it wasn't just that they were black. Part of it was they were women. Women, women just don't go to these meetings. Women just don't attend these sorts of things. And, and the ghettoization that was taking place, but the story literally showed them, showed us that they that they sprung out of that ghettoization and they literally, I never knew this, they literally saved the space program. There was a group 
of these wonderful, skilled, talented black women that literally saved John Glenn's life. I never knew that. It's a true story. True story. You need to go see it. It's one of those stories everybody cheers at the end. Everybody claps and cheers. But hear me when I say this. NASA didn't get it until the crunch was on. This world won't get the church until the crunch is on. They want us ghettoized for now, not realizing that we're the only ones that have the answers to the problems they're about ready to face. So we need to be ready for that, don't we? We need to be ready to spring out. We're no longer, the church is no longer going to be in the basement. There's coming a day when God says, I'm calling you out of the basement and you're coming out into the main auditorium. And it's only going to happen, though, with people who have gotten in to the book. They've heard God's voice through the book. Amen.